for those who do focus on Myanmar in that region of the world, there's a sense of people want to try to believe that narrative that democracy is is moving forward. And and in some ways it has, but you can't allow that uh, that narrative to take over and ignore um, the the really dark areas of, of realities of what have happened has happened in Myanmar in in recent years. Hello, 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 and welcome to the first official episode of season five of Declarations. My name is Munagasim, and I will be your podcast host for today. We are joined by two wonderful, wonderful guests, so our, our uh, panelist Akshita and a very distinguished and exciting guest, Dan Sullivan. Dan will be talking to us today about what is going on with the Rohingyas in Myanmar, and we'll be looking to talk about the general election that took place last week and what that means for human rights in our world today. So before we begin, let me give you all a brief introduction on who Dan Sullivan is. Dan Sullivan is the Senior Advocate for Human Rights at Refugees International. He focuses on Myanmar, Sudan, South Sudan, and other areas affected by mass displacement. He has more than 17 years of human rights and foreign policy experience, previously working with United to End Genocide, formerly Save Darfur, the Brookings Institution, Human Rights First, and the Albright-Stonebridge Group, where he assisted former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in her role as co-chair of the Genocide Prevention Task Force. Dan has a master's degree in international conflict management from the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and a bachelor's degree in international relations from Harvard University. You can follow Dan on Twitter at EndGenocideDan. Dan, thank you so much for joining us here today. What a pleasure it is to have you on this podcast. And um, I'm really looking forward to discussing this topic with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you tell us, first and foremost, a little bit about your work um, and perhaps provide our audience with some background and what's been going on with the Rohingyas in Myanmar. I'd just like to point out to our audience that we also have an episode done on the ongoing genocide in Myanmar, and you can find that on season one of our podcast. So yeah, Dan, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work, what you do with the Refugees International, um, and why this is such an important issue? Sure, thank you. Um, so, as you said, I'm, I'm the senior advocate for human rights uh, at Refugees International, where I focus uh, mainly on on the Rohingya and on on, on South Sudan and, and general atrocity prevention uh, work. Refugees International is a uh, an independent advocacy organization based in Washington D.C. It's been around since the the late '70s and works all around the world um, where there's places that have been affected by mass displacement. Refugees International is a little bit unique because we uh, don't take any government or UN funding. Um, we also don't have operations on the ground. Um, so that allows us to be uh, a little bit more independent in, in the um, advocacy that we do and the recommendations we come up with. So typically, you know, the way we work is uh, we'll, we'll go to an area that's been affected by mass displacement. So, for example, I've been to, you know, uh, internally displaced camps in Myanmar and uh, refugee camps for Rohingya in, in Bangladesh several times. And we'll talk to the people who've been affected by the displacement, uh, the governments that are there, um, the uh, NGO humanitarian workers, and just really kind of try to drill down into what what are some practical recommendations that we can uh, make to improve the situation? And some of those are longer term, some of those are more immediate. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk a little more about some of the main ones we're, we're doing um, as, as we continue the conversation. 
But I think, um, you know, as you said, this is a, an important moment where um, we have, uh, I mean, much of the world has looked at the U.S. elections and certainly we in, in the U.S. have looked at that and the importance of what's happening. Uh, but at the same time, just over the weekend, we had another election, which was um, in Myanmar or also known as Burma. And the, you know, much of the world looked at this as a, as a, a chance, a, a lot of Governments have used the word milestone, a milestone towards building democracy. Um, and certainly when you look back at decades of military rule in Myanmar, there were the first uh, democratic elections in 2015 and opening. And um, we saw Aung San Suu Kyi, the former Nobel Peace Prize winner and uh, political prisoner who was elected. And a lot of people were very hopeful of what that would mean. But fast forward to today and actually from 2015 to today, what we see is that this election was anything but free and fair. Um, And, you know, we could talk about just basic things like uh, freedom of the press and and intimidation and and, uh, arresting of of people who are critical of the government. But even looming even larger is the fact of this genocide that was committed against uh, the Rohingya people. Um, And there's been decades of persecution against the Rohingya. um, But uh, you know, in, in August of 2017, we just saw a whole nother level where um, in the course of a few months, uh, more than 700,000 people were forced out of the country. Um, and now you still have, so you have um, some million people uh, in living in camps in Bangladesh. And then you have uh, an estimated 600,000 Rohingya who still live in, uh, in Myanmar, who still face persecution. Uh, the vast majority of whom were not allowed to work, or I'm sorry, not allowed to uh, vote in this election. You've had Rohingya who in the past had been able to run for office. That's no longer allowed. So you have this mass displacement, mass disenfra- disenfranchisement of uh, the Rohingya people. Um, and uh, so you, you see uh, there's this hope for this milestone of democracy, but really uh, you can't talk about that without... Uh, ignoring, you know, you can't ignore the, the genocide that's taken place. And, and uh, you know, there are also other ethnic minorities who are being um, being persecuted um, as, as we look forward. So the fact is there remains a really high risk of further atrocities in the country. And there's a lot that the international community can and should be doing um, to change that rather than welcoming this as, as a milestone in, in um, leading to democracy. So um, that is, you know, you make some, you made some very, very interesting points. And what what really drew my attention is the, why hasn't this caught as much media attention as it should? I mean, we heard about, you know, the genocide, but it seems like the international community has almost brushed it aside in a way and forgotten about it. So, and why do you think the international community is not doing enough or, you know, welcoming these elections without looking at the repercussions um, and, you know, the context that, are, that, are, that surrounds these elections that are occurring in Myanmar? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think, well, first of all, to be fair, you know, there, there have been statements by the U.S., the U.K., um, EU that have raised these issues of, of the disenfranchisement. But they've uh, paired that with uh, welcoming the elections. And so there's been this there's this danger of, of just kind of uh, accepting, well, this is the way it has to go forward. 
Um, and, and there really needs to be more done to, uh, you know, ju- well, just to recognize this as genocide. That's something that the, the United States has yet to officially do. They've called it ethnic cleansing. Um, they've done reports that show all the kinds of uh, aspects of crimes against humanity and, and genocide that took place, but have failed to say that. And that's that's important. Um, but I think, you know, there's a there's a mix of uh, of fatigue of uh, once when this first hit, you know, there's a lot of attention, but as you go on, there's less attention. There's a lot of other things happening in the world, as we know, um, you know, with, with COVID-19, um, places like Syria, Yemen, uh, other places where there've been, there's been mass displacement. So that kind of takes, uh, you know, attention away from this. So Dan, you talked about how obviously there have been steps made towards making Myanmar a more robust democracy than it was, say, 10 years ago. And so there is some need for the countries like the US and the UK to remain invested in the electoral process, whether this means funding um, the Electoral uh, Union Commission in Myanmar or giving other forms of aid. So how do you think Western democracies can give aid and continue being invested in the electoral process while still not funding a sham election or an election that doesn't actually stand with any of the principles of democracy that it should. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, the the, the Union Election Commission is something that's come under a lot of uh, criticism for, um, you know, for the way that they've been less than transparent um, for, you know, some of the international funding has gone towards one, one big thing was uh, an app that was, uh, was funded by international donors that, um, actually labeled uh, Rohingya people as Bengali, which is kind of a pejorative uh, term that's used by um, people in, in Myanmar who believe that the Rohingya are uh, illegal um, immigrants from, from Bangladesh, which is this, this um, narrative that, it, that, is, that many people in, in Myanmar believe, um, which ignores the reality of how the Rohingya have lived in, in the area for generations and uh, a whole history of uh, Rohingya who have uh, who in the past have been able to vote or serve in office or um, just serve in the, in the, in the national police and, and army. Uh, but, um, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough balance, but I think that the main thing is, you know, we shouldn't, remove all aid, there should be support for um, groups that have been disenfranchised or groups that uh, are, are trying to push for um, uh, democratic ideals within the country. Um, so it's trying to find that balance, but not allowing that funding to go towards uh, questionable entities that are, um, rather than promoting democracy, actually holding it back. I mean, I, what it really comes down to is, you know, the, the real test of any democracy is uh, how does it treat its minorities? How does it protect its minorities? And if you look at the case of Myanmar and, uh, and the Rohingya and other uh, minority ethnic groups, that government is, is failing that miserably. Um, and Dan, earlier you mentioned COVID-19. Obviously, these are very strange, unprecedented times. And we've seen the pandemic affect different groups disproportionately, depending on where they are in the world, but also within, um, you know, the same country. So ethnic minorities, people of color um, being worse affected by obviously this this pandemic. So talking about, you know, Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and in settlement camps, do you have any idea uh, about sort of their situations on the ground and how the COVID-19 pandemic has sort of affected this and affected this process and what's been going on in, in Myanmar at the moment? 
Yeah, I've um, so I've traveled to the camps of Bangladesh several times in recent years. Um, the last time, uh, not not during uh, since COVID has has um, has has shown up. Um, you know, we have to be very careful about you know. Um, uh, first of all, the the restrictions that are on um, foreigners for going in, but also even if that was allowed, not wanting to uh, potentially bring COVID into these kinds of places, and it's a yeah, it's a real test in uh, in those camp settings. I mean, when when COVID nineteen first uh, kind of broke out, uh, Refugees International uh, did a report um, that you know we I have colleagues who work in uh, on on areas all around the world um, affected by displacement and you know, just laid out, you know, what are the, the real concerns? Like, we really need to watch out for the most vulnerable people in the world. And those who are in camps are among the most vulnerable for a whole set of reasons. I mean, but, you, you know, you mentioned that the kind of health thing, there's the the access to healthcare, just even before COVID-19 hit, you know, there's all kinds of uh, viruses and, and, and uh, diseases that are that people who are living in camps in cramped conditions are more susceptible to, and they don't have as much access to healthcare. They live in these very dense populations. I mean, the Rohingya camps in Bangladesh are estimated to be something like four times the the population density of New York City. They are, uh, you know, there are a lot of restrictions in Bangladesh. Um, so, you know, while the, the government and the people of Bangladesh should be praised for welcoming in and hosting this you know, millions, uh, a million people, um, there's been some less than positive policies within Bangladesh that, that can't be ignored. Um, you know, Rohingya have uh, limited freedom of movement uh, between the camps or outside of the camps. Um, more recently, there have been, uh, you know, barbed wire fencing being put up around the camps to further restrict that. There's plans to move uh, Rohingya to an island uh, in the Bay of Bengal that that raises a lot of questions. I mean, it, it didn't even exist a couple of decades ago. It's a, a buildup of silt and it's prone to massive flooding and all kinds of questions about how aid would get there. Would, would people be able to go back and visit their families? Right now, there are some 300 people who had tried to leave on boats, um, which is a whole nother issue we could discuss. A, a lot of people have been um, kind of abandoned out at, at, at sea when they're trying to escape. Um, but there are about 300 who were taken in by Bangladesh and moved to that island, Bashanchar, um, and they have not been able to leave and, and to reunite with family back in the camp. So all kinds of questions and issues. But um, yeah, COVID-19 uh, creates a particular challenge. You know, even when you're trying to take, you know, a government like Bangladesh is trying to take steps to s- stop the further spread. Um, they restricted access to the camps. And what that basically meant was, 80% withdrawal of humanitarian presence in the camps. So you already have challenges. Now you have less um, uh, capacity to, to address those. I will say that on the, on the perhaps brighter side, although we don't know the full story, is that the, the fears of how quickly it would, um, COVID-19 would spread in the camps don't seem to, by official numbers, have, have played out. There's only around 300 cases that have been recorded. Um, now I say we don't know the full story because there's rampant rumors going around in the camps, um, and people believe that there, there's fears that if you come forward and say you have COVID nineteen or have some some uh, sort of uh, symptoms that you'll be taken away, uh, that you'll be killed. Uh, I mean, just a lot of false rumors going around in the camps, and 
that gets to a bigger uh, issue, um, which my, my last report earlier this year looked at, which is there's generally been a failure to properly engage and inform the Rohingya community about issues that are really important to their future. So we don't know the full story of COVID-19. It doesn't look like it's spread as, as, as far as we would have feared. Uh, the camps are largely younger people, so maybe that, that will, will help. Um, but it's, uh, I, you know, I don't think we've seen the, the worst of it yet. Um, and even if you take away the threat of COVID-19, the, the future for people in these camps is, is pretty bleak. Um, and, you know, which brings me back kind of full circle to the need to address those root causes, which is the persecution in Myanmar. Uh, and the international community really needs to put pressure on Myanmar to create the conditions that are safe uh, for safe, voluntary, dignified, and sustainable return of Rohingya to uh, their place of origin there in uh, Myanmar. And do you think the international community will do that? I think we've uh, we've seen some some moves towards that, which um, which are worth noting. I I mean the the United States uh, has has um, has put placed targeted sanctions on several high military officials and two. Um, Two of the the battalions that have been uh, were most involved in the uh, uh, in, in driving the Rohingya out and the the uh, attacks on civilians, um, and, and that includes the the most senior uh, military general uh, Min Aung which is which is notable that that uh, you know that kind of attention and and those sanctions that was that was not done right away. It took a while. There's a lot of people who uh, a lot of groups like Refugees International that have been pushing for that, so that's welcome. Um, there's, you know, there have been strong uh, warnings by different uh, countries. Uh, uh, the Gambia deserves a lot of credit for taking up um, and, and introducing a case at the International Court of Justice um, charging Myanmar with genocide. Um, and that's been backed up by the, um, the, the OIC countries and, and, by, uh, and by others. And so there, there certainly has been movement and, and pushing towards Myanmar to create those conditions. The one, one of the outcomes of the initial, the start of that International Court of Justice case was to uh, release what are called pr- preliminary measures, which call upon Myanmar to prevent genocide going forward. Um, and to refrain from destroying any kind of evidence that could go towards a future case. And uh, that also requires Myanmar to report every six months on what progress they've been made. So there's that international uh, attention, and Myanmar has responded. I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi herself went to The Hague to defend Myanmar on uh, against these uh, genocide charges. So we do see that that international attention does bring a response. That said, there's a lot more that should could and should be done. And I would highlight, you know, one step that we believe is the the single most concrete, influential, immediate step that could be taken is uh, for the United States to recognize what happened to the Myanmar, to Rohingya, what the Myanmar government and, and military did to uh, the Rohingya is genocide and crimes against humanity. And that's that's significant for, for a number of reasons, but it it shows the urgency of what's happening. It um, creates uh, more political pressure towards further targeted sanctions, including on military-owned enterprises, which um, would really uh, affect some of those, those leaders. And it shows solidarity both with um, the Rohingya themselves, who are hoping for this, uh, you know, for justice, and want to be heard, want to want to have the hope of of going home, and with uh, with Bangladesh um, and and other countries that are hosting refugees. 
um, to show that they're not alone. They're not, um, they don't have to um, bear this, this, uh, this responsibility on their own. And hopefully that can help to push for more positive um, policies as long as the Rohingya refugees have to stay there. Uh, and then it has practical implications for these, uh, these efforts at accountability, both at International Court of Justice. There's also an, an ICC, International um, Criminal Court, investigation that's ongoing. And there's other avenues that, uh, that can, be, can, can be pursued. And having the U.S. come out with that genocide determination could really um, bolster all these other efforts. And then hopefully lead to uh, a more uh, concerted multinational effort. So the U.S. working with other allies so many countries who have expressed concern about what's going on with the Rohingya to uh, to really put in together that diplomatic uh, pressure, the, the targeted sanctions, continued humanitarian assistance uh, to help uh, the Rohingya. So that's I think that all can get a real kickstart if we can we can get that, uh, you know, get them to call it genocide. So you've been to you've been to the camps a lot, obviously, and you've spoken to the Rohingya people. I want to know what do they want what have what have people been in the camps been saying that they want out of this situation? Yeah, that's a, a really important thing because that's something we at Refugees International and, and other groups really try to to uh, emphasize. You know, we're not we're not. You know, some people use the term being a voice for the voiceless, uh, and and the Rohingya and other communities they are not voiceless. They are uh, they they have been speaking out, and we just want to be able to amplify that. Um, and what you hear from you know, I've, I've heard from. On, on many different trips and talking to uh, hundreds of, of refugees that what they want is they want to return home, but they don't want to return home if it's not safe. I mean, these, these people have, uh, have experienced and witnessed awful things and experienced mass trauma. Uh, so they really need to feel confident that it's, it's safe for them to go home, but they, they do, they want to go home. They want to have their rights. Uh, they want to have uh, be recognized for citizenship and they want uh, justice. So they, they really, um, you know, there's a following of what's happening in the international community. Um, but I would say also there's, um, there's an important aspect of making sure that uh, there's a management of expectations, you know, of people need to know that the process in, in these international accountability measures, like at the International Court of Justice, will take years. Um, we hope that the immediate steps will change things more immediately, but a lot of this goes on. So, but that's generally what what the Rohingya people want. And yeah, it's it's um, it's been something that uh, even even before you know the Rohingya who had had been displaced even before two thousand seventeen have have always said that they they want to have that chance to return home when it's safe. But you you just have to look at the reality. Um, and many many of the Rohingya refugees do still have contact with family members or friends in in the country, and they see that things aren't aren't getting any better. Um, that uh, in many ways getting worse and, and, you know, just sort of a doubling down on, on not allowing for citizenship. Look at the elections that just happened, not being able to to vote um, or even for Rohingya to uh, run for office. So it's uh, there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done within uh, Myanmar before people can really feel confident that going back will, will even be safe. So a lot of Rohingya refugees who are settled in Bangladesh or who are staying in Bangladesh right now, were told to come back or like forced repatriation was tried out by the Myanmar government and the Bangladesh government um, by forcing them to accept national verification cards or NVCs. Um, So could you just tell us a bit more about why these NVCs are so harmful and why it's something that the Rohingya absolutely do not think 
is a feasible solution for them to return. Sure. And and I'll say I was um, I talked to people who were involved with some of those uh, repatriation exercises, you know, so this was going back, um, a, you know, a couple of times where uh, Bangladesh and, and Myanmar have come to agreements, uh, you know, signed uh, memorandums of understanding uh, about how refugees would come back to Myanmar and twice now. And, and there was a third time also, actually, but there have been official exercises to, to say, OK, we're going to accept Rohingya who want to come back. Bangladesh officials brought buses out, but no Rohingya showed up um, for all the reasons I mentioned. They they know that it's not safe to go back. They don't want to go back uh, until things change. So in no way have uh, Rohingya really been in, included officially in those memoranda of understandings about returning. So this goes back to what I mentioned, my last report that, that looked at how uh, Rohingya have really been left out of, you know, engagement and in, in information about uh, these these issues that are really important to them. On the uh, national verification cards, the NVCs, this is this is something where uh, Rohingya feel very strongly that they don't trust it. There's a whole history of various kinds of identification cards um, that have been given to uh, Rohingya over the years and then uh, either been revoked or, or ignored. I've also interviewed people who uh, had been in, in Rakhine State, had been in prison and then released, and who told me that uh, they were essentially forced to accept these uh, national verification cards um, in order to, to leave. And one of the big problems is that uh, Rohingya have not been able to identify themselves as Rohingya. They, they have to essentially revoke their own identity in order to accept these, and there's no clear path to citizenship. Once people have gotten the NBC cards in uh, in uh, Myanmar, there's been no real additional freedom of movement or or, or better rights or, or um, recognition for citizenship, you know. And this is also something that before um, the attacks that happened in August 2017, in fact, a day before, there was a an international uh, advisory commission that came out with a report led by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, which had many practical recommendations for how to improve the situation in Rakhine State. And initially, the, the Myanmar government and military even accepted those uh, recommendations. But one of them goes into some detail on the national verification cards um, and just provides a recommendation that this needs to be you know, revisited. And, and uh, you know, there's this deep distrust among the Rohingya community, which is very understandable, and that that needs to be addressed um, in uh, in going forward, so it's a it's a real legitimate concern for the Rohingya community. It's something that has been raised by international experts, um, yet something that the the Myanmar government continues to push and and sort of show is like a fig leaf of this is well this is how we're dealing with the citizenship question, um, but it's really uh, more problematic than anything else. There does seem to be like a lot of like a recurring pattern of the Myanmar government trying to have some kind of card or system to show that they're following the principles of democracy, but really um, all those systems just make it harder for Rohingya refugees to, uh, or for Rohingya and Myanmar to have equal rights. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and and there's also, you know, they, they put in systems where uh, in order to prove your citizenship, you have to have all this documentation going back so many years. Um, and you're talking about a population that's been displaced and so much that uh, many of these people don't don't have those documents. But even the people who do are not finding um, paths forward towards citizenship. So you know, this sounds it it sounds a little bit insane that you know, given 
everything that's happened, given how blatant this, you know, the, the treat and the persecution and treatment of the Rohingya has been, why does the governor, government of Myanmar continue to repeat these patterns and why isn't anything really changing? Why, why do you think that is the case? Well, I think one um, big part of it is that um, there has been, you know, because of all the years of isolation under the uh, military government um, and because of the this, this widespread hate speech and vitriol and, and there's a whole wing of, of nationalist um, Buddhist monks who, who have, have put forth this narrative of the Rohingya being not only illegal uh, immigrants, but being essentially a, an existential threat to the uh, the identity, the the Burmese, the uh, Bauman, um, the main uh, ethnic group, and Buddhist uh, minority, or, or sorry, majority. Um, so you have the Rohingya who are mostly Muslim, um, who people say come from another, uh, you know, come from another country illegally. Uh, and then all these uh, sensationalized reports of, of, of horrible things that Rohingya have done. And that's really permeated the, uh, the, the population in writ large. So there's no or there's very little push from the inside uh, of Myanmar uh, for, for the government and the military to do something different. Um, there's more this, this buy into the, this, this false narrative of them being this huge threat. So that's the that's one major thing. So that's it, and again, that just makes it all the more important for the international community to continue to to press them on this. We've seen a change uh, among other ethnic minority groups who have uh, experienced similar kinds of persecution from the Myanmar government and military. And and the the most pronounced one probably is within Rakhine State itself, where the Rohingya and another ethnic minority group, the the Rakhine people have lived together for for decades. And the Rakhine have had a whole history also of um, being persecuted by the, the central, initially the military government. And today we see that just over the last year and a half or so that there's been uh, renewed fighting among a group called the Arakan Army uh, with the the Myanmar military. And that has really complicated things. Um, but it's it's now there's less the, um, you know, the Arakan people against the Rohingya people and more looking at what the military and government has been doing. You know, we, we've been talking about the elections and what happened. That's another aspect of the disenfranchisement that's happened. The military has said, it's too dangerous in, in uh, Rakhine State to vote. So not only are the Rohingya not allowed to vote, but many of the, um, the Rakhine have not been able to vote. And that goes for other states or regions of Myanmar too. Uh, minorities in Kachin and Shan State um, were not able to vote um, because the military saying that it's not, it's not safe. So it's not just a, an anti-Rohingya narrative. It's, it's also a, um, the central military and, and government um, and the the majority uh, with a whole history of um, of persecution of ethnic minorities around the country. Is this like the military declaring that there are certain spaces with ethnic minorities not being safe to conduct the vote? Is this a strategic move by the government because they see a rise in um, opposition among ethnic minorities in Myanmar? Or is it just another step just to persecute minorities? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. I mean, there there are places where there are there is fighting going on, and there are legitimate security concerns. 
But um, what observers on the ground are saying is that it's they're going beyond that and, and really using it as an excuse to further disenfranchise um, other people. Again, this this is paired with uh, a host of other many other issues um, where we've we've seen um, pushbacks on freedom of of the press and um, on uh, people who have spoken out being being imprisoned um, and just uh, a lot of a lot of other. If you're you're looking for progress in democracy, this is not the way to go. And it, you know, even beyond the the very blatant um, attacks on uh, ethnic minority groups. So you know, this was an interesting factor that actually and I were just talking about before this interview. You know, being being a law student myself, I think, you know, of course, you know, the international community doesn't want to recognize this as being genocide because perhaps they don't want to have to take action. And if you know recognizing something as genocide connotes that, oh, the commu- the international states will then are obliged to take action. Um, do you think, you know, that plays a role in why states are sort of shying away from recognizing what's been going on as genocide? Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, state, states are, are worried about what, what this might mean. Um, I think there's people get sort of wrapped around the uh, the, the legal definitions and they can, it can get very technical. But I think the, the the role of a state is really, I mean, and, and especially in the, in the in light of this, just the overwhelming evidence that we've seen, and and I should mention that uh, you know the international independent fact finding mission that was uh, you know set up by the UN came out with this finding of you know this this strong evidence of of uh, genocide and including and and the, the hardest part of genocide to prove right is the intent. Um, there's a whole series of there's a series of acts of genocide that can can fit under that you know killing or, or maiming of a certain part of the group, um, uh, denial of of allowing them to have children, creating conditions in life meant to destroy the the group in whole or part. All that has been documented, you know, or or, or different aspects of acts of genocide have been documented. But what becomes difficult is well, what how do you prove the intent? Um, like unless it's a very blatant kind of thing where. Um, you know, for example, with the um, with the Yazidi um, and ISIS, there was actually statements made that this is our purpose and our, our what we want to do. So, I, I, you know, people get a little bit wrapped around like what is the, the, the legal definition of intent. But if you look at what the fact finding mission found and what uh, Refugees International and others have done in looking at this, um, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and we we also worked with a, a group of international legal and human rights experts who signed on to a letter um, saying the same thing that if you look at what's happened and and the the rhetoric from the military and the actions and everything, you really can prove this. Uh, you know this uh, that there is this reasonable grounds for believing this is the, the intent is there as well. So yes, I think it's it's a mix of. Um, not wanting to have to do more uh, or worrying about what that might uh, obligate for states, um, but also sort of getting too wrapped up around these legal definitions. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's very clear that uh, horrible things have happened and that there should be a response to this. Uh, and that's really what it comes down to. Um, and so that's where, you know, where we've been pushing with other groups to really, with the U.S. in particular, to get Secretary Pompeo to recognize this as genocide and using any opportunity we can. There was uh, an international uh, Rohingya donor conference last month. And initially, it sounded like Secretary Pompeo was supposed to be opening that up with his own remarks. It was his uh, his deputy who actually spoke, who had been to Bangladesh recently. But we wrote a letter to him along with uh, several other groups 
just urging that he use that as an opportunity to um, to recognize this as genocide. And I will say we've also we've also engaged with the the Biden campaign um, and written them a letter, which is up on our all this is up on our our website, Refugees International, and call it genocide pushing for that recognition to be done. So we're, we're hopeful that maybe this new administration would be more willing to take a, you know, take a stronger stance on what's going on. But we'll, we and other groups will continue to, uh, to be pushing them to, to do that you know, for all the reasons I mentioned of why, why a genocide determination beyond the fact of what, what the facts say and what it is, what that can actually do to, um, to push for more political will to do more that really can um, change the long-term situation for the Rohingya. Great. I think that's a good point to sort of round off our discussion. Akshita, would you like to add anything? I do think that, like Dan said, that there is definitely room for progress, but that is happening, right? Because three years ago, governments were hesitant to even call out the Rohingya crisis, to recognize the Rohingya as a persecuted group. Now, in 2020, we had the ICJ charging Myanmar with crimes of genocide against the Rohingya. So I definitely think that even with the more progressive elections in the U.S., there's definitely change that can happen and should happen. But definitely it's something that we should all be recognizing that there's this entire really significant election that has just taken place and it's just not at the forefront of the international media. And that does point to the need for change and the need to draw attention to these issues. Yeah, and I would just add that, um, you know, if people are looking for what they can do to be in, involved with this, you know, there are uh, campaigns all around the world that are, are being engaged. But, you know, for example, in the U.S., I think um, we've seen change where this is not this is not a partisan issue. We've seen bipartisan support uh, in, in both Democratic and Republican side in Congress. And last month, you know, this engagement, they they your representatives, whether in the U.S. or elsewhere, uh, do listen Um and when you when you continue to push this, last month uh, the Senate introduced a genocide determination bill, and the House is expected to do that um, soon. So uh, we do see this. You, know, you continue to get more and more echoes uh, of pushing for this recognition and for pushing for more to be done by the Rohingya. So it's it's important wherever you are in the world to uh, keep engaging your government and looking at all these international campaigns that are going on. And I'll, I'll, I should point out there's many uh, Rohingya diaspora themselves who have been very outspoken and who have engaged in various advocacy efforts that um, that everyone should support. Um, so uh, I think there, as, as uh, Akshada said, this is, there is um, progress being seen. We need to keep pushing this. Um, and, uh, but yeah, a lot more that, that can and, and should be done. So Dan, I think the last thing I, I'd like to ask is, is there one or three core messages that you'd sort of like our audience to get out of this interview? What are some of the things that they can take home and that you'd really like to hone in and just drill down? Yeah, I think number one is call it genocide. I mean, this is the, uh, it's a a long-term, very complex uh, thing to deal with when you have a million people who are refugees and a government that continues to um, abuse its people. But if there's one thing that can really kickstart all the other things that I've mentioned um, that can be done, it's encourage uh, your government, all governments to recognize this as genocide. The second thing is 
this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon. You know, the reality for refugees. Um, so we need to continue to uh, encourage international donors to continue to support uh, Bangladesh's efforts um, and uh, to as long as the refugees have to stay away from their homes, um, that they can they can be supported. And then I guess the last thing is just to in- encourage uh, Bangladesh to also engage in positive uh, policies. Um, and just, yeah, and, and finally just encourage everyone to continue to follow what's happening with Rohingya to raise awareness about it um, so that this doesn't uh, get get pushed away and, and become like an accepted uh, normal. We, we can't accept it when, when genocide happens and as, as efforts go forward with, you know, pushing for democracy in, in Myanmar, uh, this is, it's really important that we, we continue to recognize this and support accountability efforts. We also have the wonderful Tunkin joining us today. Tunkin was born and brought up in Arakan State, Burma. His grandfather was a parliamentary secretary during the democratic period of Burma. His mother's grandfather was the first judge in northern Arakan State, Myanmar. Although well-established and respected, alongside a million other ethnic Rohingya, Tunkin was not recognized as a citizen of Burma. He is co-founder and president of the Burmese Rohingya Organization UK, which has been a leading voice for Rohingya people around the world. Tunkin has briefed officials on the genocide committed against Rohingya populations at the British Parliament, Swedish Parliament, Morocco Parliament, Canada Parliament, European Union Parliament, U.S. Senate, U.S. Congress State Department, the U.N. Indigenous Forum in New York, and the U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva. Tunkin has been a featured speaker on Rohingya's rights for the BBC, Sky News, CNN, Al Jazeera, and many other media outlets. Tunkin filed a universal jurisdiction case in Argentina against the Myanmar military and civilian government for genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. He received a leadership award from Refugees International Washington, D.C. in April 2015 for his relentless effort working on the Rohingya crisis. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tunkin. I will now hand over to our panelist, Akshita, and she will continue the conversation. So, Tunkin, could you tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Okay, sure. I'm a Rohingya. I was born and brought up in Arkana State, western part of Burma. Actually, uh, I left when I was about 17 in from Arkana State. My grandfather was a member of parliament during the democratic period time of Burma, 1950s, you know, after Burma got independence. And my mother's grandfather was the first judge in northern Arkana, but I was not recognized as a citizen of Burma till I was in Arkana State. Um, I have witnessed Rohingya situation in Burma, how human rights violations uh, we face, you know. For example, mm-hmm. when I was in Arkana State, I can move from one village to another. From, mm-hmm. For example, from London to Manchester, if we need to go, we need to get a pass, it takes two to three days. And for example, I have seen that when I was young that time, I, my brother's friends, whoever, like more than 20, you know, uh, whoever, um, around 2025, 20, those guys, they couldn't get married because they need to get a pass. It takes like two to three years. And mm-hmm. my father's own land been taken, uh, you know, uh, taken by Burmese um, military. They kept under military control. So um, I have seen many, seri- and myself, actually, finally, I couldn't go to the university because I was not recognized as a citizen. Even mm-hmm. though my grandfather was member of parliament, 
My father did government service more than 20 years. I was not recognized as a citizen of Burma. This is very systematic. Burma's government, military destroying our community. That is what I have faced. And I'm genocide survivor. And now I am leading Burmese Rohingya organization UK. We founded it in 2005 to highlight international arena. We do international advocacy. We file a case in Argentina, you know, universal jurisdiction case last November. And we're doing our best to stop genocide against Rohingya as a genocide survivor. Yeah, I mean, the work you do is really great and it's really inspirational. And like you said, um, the denial of identity for Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar is very systemic. It's ingrained. So just last week, there were elections, general elections held in Myanmar. And um, the Rohingya citizens were again denied the right to vote along with other ethnic minorities. So could you just tell us a bit about what those elect- what was the importance of those elections and what does it mean that um, the Rohingya were disenfranchised? This election is a apartheid election. It's not free and fair. Rohingyas and some of other minorities being not allowed to vote and not allowed to be member of parliament, particularly Rohingyas. Exclusion of political process is a part of genocide. You know, since 1933, even British colonial period time, Rohingya were allowed to vote and allowed to be member of parliament since 1933 until 2010. Rohingya, all the elections, you know, Rohingya were able to vote and Rohingya were allowed to be member of parliament. And 2015, the first time in history we were not allowed under president things in government, union election commission, now is under NLD government, which is so-called democratic government mm. from international community, as still under the Alsace, which is government, we were not allowed to vote and not allowed to be member of parliament. This is very systematic restrict, uh, disenfranchising our community from political process, even though we have glorious past and establishment in our country. So I, I think uh, this is one more surprising is uh international community should condemn it they have not done mm. yet so international community instead supporting union election commission which is racist election which is racist commission so they denying that we are not our uh, citizen but we have our own citizenship you know because yeah. of 1982 citizenship law they denying our citizenship that's why we were not allowed and this is very systematic and Burmese government is continuing with that. So, like you said, and you wrote an article about this in the Washington Post, how the international community is still funding the Union Election Commission in Myanmar, even though it's been discriminatory against Rohingya. So, do you think condemning Myanmar and the and the Election Commission is the first step for the international community? What else can the international community be doing? One thing is international community should condemn that this is not free and fair where mm. minorities been excluded, largest Rohingya minority, you know. Yeah. And secondly, this for the democracy and human rights, prosperous of the country, this is not the right way to move forward while you are marginalizing a community. So international community should send a strong signal that this is not free and fair. They should condemn first. And secondly, they should push a stronger pressure to NLD government to restore the rights of the Rohingya can participate in future election. And the international community, US, UK, and EU countries have to adopt a policy that 
in further election, Burmese, uh, you, you, they will not support financial support to UEC, Union Election Commission, they will not recognize the government. But we have not seen this kind of action, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So this is making fool to the international community. That is very important that international community should set up timeline and benchmark to one current NLD government to stop that, excluding Rohingyas and other minorities. Yeah, um, I did read that a lot of the international community and voters in Myanmar feel that they need to vote for the NLD or support these elections in, because it's like a stopgap measure against a military government coming back into power. So do you think that's the broader sentiment or does the international community just need to take a hard stance against the NLD's elections? One thing is that is right that Burmese people, they have no other choice. Mm. This military brutal, they, can, they are brutal military and the military dictated to the country, uh, military destroyed. There is uh, such violations of human rights for many decades. Yeah. So military, uh, most of the, of course, people of Burma do not want to see the military in power again. They want to support NLD government. Of course, NLD is the only way uh, alternative. There is no other alternative. That is point. That is from some point. That is right. But NLD government, they are not democratic. Uh, even they are mm -hmm. not. The, there is a lot of no freedom of speech. Political prisoners still remain in jail, and they are not. Uh, they are not trying to get international. They are not trying to support uh, minorities and instead they are trying to put Burmanization policy, Burmese majority first, ethnic rights, they are not caring for it. So that is one thing. But it's one thing is we need to focus on for the long run, this is not the way the government can move forward. Definitely. We need to push much pressure from international community. There is much more needed to know while a country genocide is practicing, how can that country could be a democracy and human rights? Exactly. Yeah, that is very important because everyone says that Aung San Suu Kyi is still a democratic leader, but is she really? Um, and you talked a lot about the uh, the brutal nature of the military. And how how do you, how does your organization or how do other activists actually work in Myanmar when they're not when the military doesn't give them access to internment camps or to villages where Rohingya are staying. So how do activists work in such a place? We try to work with other activists, but I cannot talk to the media about it for, for yeah. the security issues. Mm. We work in grassroots level to support humanitarian aid and others and to get access to the media. And so we work in hard, but we got a lot of first-hand information from the ground. Mm. And we're doing our best to live with our sister community, Rakhine, where Burmese government is divided and rule policy using. So that is what we're doing. Wow, that's great. And finally, could you just tell us a little bit about the on-the-ground situation in the refugee camps, the Rohingya refugees camps, camps in Bangladesh? What has the COVID pandemic done? Uh, there is about 1 million Rohingya uh, genocide survivors in our kind of state when they fled in 2017, where their parents and slaughtered and, you know, sisters been raped, uh, you know, 
is I visited uh, I visited there about uh, one month uh, a few times and 17 2000 September 17 September I visited there I spent one month with those genocide survivors I have seen how they crossing the border and I have I witnessed how the situation horrific situation they are facing and I think it is the worst time in our history how the Rohingya been brutally Rohingya been uh, killed and murdered in front of their own eyes, you know, family members. So uh, their situation is not really good. We appreciate Bangladesh government giving us a shelter and they have shown generosity, the people of Bangladesh. This is Rohingya will not, will never forget when your life is at risk, they're giving us a space. But for the long run, Bangladesh government should support their education when 40% of Rohingya refugees are children. What, the, what, what, can, what will be their future? And this is important that Bangladesh government should allow them to study. And I don't think very near future this repatriation can happen because Burmese policy towards Rohingya are not changing yet. Yeah. So international community should support Bangladesh government to allow more humanitarian aid to support Rohingya children to get education and refugees should get access to medical care and should get should not uh, should get uh, should uh, should not have restriction of movement so this is bangladesh government can do that will make more uh, more support for genocide survivors that will empower rohingya community otherwise this rohingya community genocide survivors rohingya people will face will be destroyed much more in bangladesh yeah we can talk about the ICJ case that in January they uh, condemned Myanmar um, for carrying out acts of genocide. So how, how important and how relevant do you think this was as a, uh, as a declaration? You know, our Rohingya community captured global health lives in August 2017, actually. You know, when the Temedal launched a kind of uh, clear so-called uh, launched ambitious clearance operations in our country, you know, thousands of Rohingya women been raped and had thousands of Rohingya been killed by the Burmese army, slaughtered and, you know, burned alive Rohingya children and uh, unbelievable stories. More than 700,000 Rohingya fled, you know, uh, and I visited many times to, to the camp. One thing when I, I heard was from the genocide survivors, we want justice. We want justice. Mm. So, um, you know, Actually, uh, what I can see is there is justice means for the Rohingya is very, uh, this is uh, justice means uh, many ways. First, justice mm. means that one thing is uh, we want to get, we want to bring those responsible to justice. Secondly, we want to go back to our homeland with the rights and we want compensation where our house has been burned down. We want to return our villages with safety and dignity. This is with protection. But ICJ ruling means so much to us, you know. Uh, I was at the court at the Hague when I, the body was delivered, you know. Mm. It's, it was very, ter- uh, I was very emotional. I'm so happy to see the provisional measures they ordered. I witnessed an official body openly condemn, you know, Myanmar for what 
they did to mm. us. I thought of my friends, families, you know, when I met in Bangladesh, I thought of a schools of people who shared with me the pain of losing loved ones, you know, uh, to the violence of the state. The body convinced me that my our decades of campaigning for the Rohingya finally achieved something, you know. The case against Myanmar at the ICG was brought by the Gambia, self-described as small countries, a big voice on human rights, you know. So we have any, uh, we have other two cases in one case we filed in Argentina, you know, universal jurisdiction case mm -hmm. that can highlight more horrific situation Rohingya face in our kind of state. We have international criminal court, another case, which is deportation case. So we really believe that justice train is moving forward, but we want to appeal international community, much more countries needed to join, you know, uh, to support uh, this ICJ case because Gambia is a small country, more yeah. funding and more financial resources are needed to support and so not to keep that case to move forward. Other countries need to be joined with Gambia to move to support that case is very important. And secondly, more universal jurisdiction we would like to see in other countries mm -hmm. that can bring those responsible to justice because military been enjoying impunity in Burma. They can kill anyone they want and they can go along with these murders, but they should have a strong signal that they cannot do that again, you know. That can, that can help, to, uh, that can, uh, because not only Rohingya, other minorities in Burma, Kashin Karen, and Rakhine, Shan, they all are facing serious human rights violation, crime against humanity, you know, military yeah. been enjoying impunity. So justice needed for the Rohingya, not only for the Rohingya, all the people of Burma, other minorities for Burma, we must push these justice cases and international community need to support much more. And the other thing is I want to point out here as Rohingyas are facing genocide in Burma, there is about 1 million population in Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. So these, we need to counteract to reveal our community. There are 40% are children there. Empowering Rohingya community is very important thing. Whenever international community talk with Rohingya issue, Rohingya should be, should be able to sit on the table to discuss. Now we can see Rohingya been sidelined and abandoned from their discussion. So that is not a, can bring a, a solution to, for the, this crisis. As the Rohingyas are the victims, the victims should be represented with their own voice. That can bring more forward to get solution for the Rohingya issue as to our sister. So I want to point out here is as a Rohingya myself, I'm a genocide survivor lucky one to be in UK. I studied and I did my civil engineering, uh, you know, but many of my friends, their life ended in Arkansas State without a studies. So a community facing genocide, we have lost everything. With the first Burmese government take our ethnic rights, then they took our citizenship rights, then they took our lands and they put restriction on movement, marriage and education, and then they create popular violence and burning our houses and pushing us to the camps. And then in the camps, Rohingyas are not allowed to get proper medical aid and uh, humanitarian aid. Then the government is saying whether you want to live in the country or you can get re you can get out of the country. This is the only way Burmese government have 
have been doing for so long. Yeah. So we are facing systematic persecution. Burmese government and military is intentionally destroying our community. This is a genocide, denying our existence, denying our identity, denying our uh, our de- denying to have medical treatment, denying to have education, denying uh, to have citizenship is all are very systematic. So we need international communities urgent solution to stop this genocide. Without international intervention, there is no way to stop this genocide. So whenever genocide happens, international communities say never again. So this is time now they have to show, they have to speak up, they have to act to stop this genocide. Yeah, I mean, the things that you described against the Rohingya community are all horrible. And we do see a trend where the international community does say never again, and then they ignore the signs of genocide, or they say that they can't take action at the point. And I think now is the time for the international community to capitalize on the ICJ ruling and to actually take some definite action. It is also important international community should stop uh, military and military-related companies doing business, sanctioning Mm -hmm. military and military-related companies. International community also should stop funding to the Burmese government if any matters, you know, because they are practicing genocides, part of genocide, you know, sorry, military government is complicit in this genocide. Mm. Even though military been doing for many years, government is also complicit in this genocide. So should be aware of, you know, these issues. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, The US did finally renew sanctions against military generals in um, Myanmar, the generals once is not helpful. I mean, they need oh. to they need to just they need to make weak military institution where military institutions are surviving with funding. You know, mm. so military related companies should be weakened. You know, that is very important. Yeah. Uh, some human rights organizations stop funding our genocide. Stop telling equip selling equipment such as drones and information technology mm. to those who use it to target unarmed civilians, you know. Uh, Our state stands on the side of the perpetrators, so it is even more urgent that other states fulfill their duty to protect beyond their own borders, you know. Mm. Uh, Rohingya community organization, which played such a critical role in alerting the world what has been happening to the Rohingya, received little or no support from for ongoing documentation and other vital work. You need, uh, uh, what I want to say, the international community should listen and support, you know, local community organizations, Rohingya organizations, documenting human rights violations. Like today, American companies, European companies, Asian companies are various different ways doing business with the military. They are helping to mm. fund genocide. And at the moment, that is legal. Targeted sanctions are needed as the way to move forward. I recognize that government may not like it, you know, Targeted sanctions are necessary part of to do this remedy. Some governments actually applied sanctions on individuals, but that is not enough at all, as I mentioned you earlier. You know. uh, the generals who committed genocide going to modify their action you know, because of its members were sanctioned individually. So the mm. evidence so far is no. UN fact-finding mission was very clear. You know, yeah. cutting ties with the military and military-related companies and other military institutions would make yeah. the difference. So that is the best practice for international community. 
Yeah, so there's definitely a hundred different approaches the international community can take to take decisive action. So it um, is very important and international community should do much more. Um, I'd like to encourage our listeners to please do their research, you know, take action in the ways that you can. I'd like to thank you all for listening and, you know, sticking with us. It's season five, so it's been five years of doing this, and we really do appreciate all our listeners. This was Declarations. My name is Muna Gassim. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast streaming service. Thank you. 